there's nowhere in the ocean where we cannot measure human influence. So to say that we're playing God by trying to repair some of the damage that we've done, I thought that was very strange. Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations and thank you for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We respect their elders past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. Today is number 53 of 100 Conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, which is climate change. We're recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system right up into the 60s. Uh, in the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. My name's Paddy Manning. Uh, I'm a journalist and author most recently of a biography of Lachlan Murdoch called The Succession, but I've also written extensively on climate change. And sitting next to me is Madeleine Van Oppen, who I have the pleasure of speaking with today. Madeleine Van Oppen was trained as a marine ecologist and became a geneticist and expert in microbial symbioses of corals. Her current research focuses on assisted evolution, the development of corals that are better able to cope with disturbed environments and predicted future ocean conditions. This includes the development of bacterial probiotics, the directed evolution of the corals microalgal symbionts, and we'll get to explaining all these terms, <laughs> and coral hybridization, selective breeding and coral conditioning. We've got a lot to talk about. We're so thrilled to have her join us today. Please join me in welcoming Madeline. We'll start with the easy stuff. Mm -hmm. You grew up in Holland, not known for its coral reefs, but like many of us, you were inspired by Jacques Cousteau. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and how you became a marine ecologist? Yeah, so I grew up in a small village in the south of the Netherlands, landlocked village, no, no ocean nearby. I did watch the Jacques Cousteau documentaries and was, was inspired by them. And when I finished high school, I went to university to study biology, but I loved all aspects of biology and I found it really difficult to choose where to specialize. So the funny thing was where, where I lived as a student, I would walk past um, the head office of the Dutch Underwater Society every day. And you know, it made me think about Jacques Cousteau and I wasn't a scuba diver at the time. But it made me actually realize that what I wanted to do was to become a marine biologist. And um, so I had to change university. I had to go to the north of the Netherlands, which isn't far, of course, because it's such a tiny country. Um, and I completed my degree in marine biology there. Your first experience, I understand, of diving on coral reefs was in the Red Sea. And you described the experience as overwhelming. Yeah, I was very lucky to travel a lot during my, my studies. Um, I did a master's project um, in, on Bonaire in the Dutch Antilles. That was actually my first experience with coral reefs, but I wasn't working on corals. I was working on, on parrotfish. They eat coral skeletons, so they're important for the uh, calcium budget on, on the reef. So I was studying those. And then uh, when I was doing my PhD, I did a trip to the Red Sea. That was um, in those days, 
uh, dive safaris um, became popular in Egypt. And so I did one of those and it was absolutely amazing. I mean, the, the color and the diversity and even the, the landscape um, in the Red Sea, it, was, it just blew me away. Um, and then the next experience was, uh, was the Great Barrier Reef, uh, which is, of course, also fabulous. The um, Lake Malawi research, um, well, there's no, no <laughs> corals in, in Lake Malawi. It's a freshwater lake. But I was working on uh, cichlid fishes. Um, and cichlid fishes are known for their rapid speciation. You know, there's a the huge radiation has occurred uh, in these lakes. And I was studying uh, what well, some of the genetic and some of the processes that may be responsible for that, for that fast rate of speciation in these fishes. Some of your earliest research was on cold water seaweeds, and I understand that, but that's what brought you to Australia and New Zealand. You went to Victoria. What, what were you studying there? Mm -hmm. So when I uh, finished my master's and um, decided I wanted to do a PhD, I wanted to learn more about genetics because, as I said, it wasn't a big component of my undergraduate uh, degree, but I, I had realized I had sort of done a little research project also during my master's uh, using genetics. And I could see the power of genetic tools in answering ecological and evolutionary questions. So I looked for a PhD project that allowed me to do that. And so, um, so I worked with cold water seaweeds and I used uh, um, DNA sequencing um, to, to study how these seaweeds had uh, distributed themselves across the world over evolutionary time, how the, um, the, the last uh, ice ages had influenced their um, evolution and distribution. And so it gave me a real good uh, basis in ecological and evolutionary genetics. Now, during my piece, so because I was working, one question that I was working on is how some species of seaweeds um, occur um, in the north and on the north and the south pole in the temperature to polar regions, but not in between. And one question is how did that distribution uh, originate? And when I started my PhD, there were a lot of samples in the lab already, but not that many from the southern hemisphere. So my PhD supervisor sent me to the south of Australia and south of New Zealand to collect some additional samples, which was absolutely wonderful. It was my first, first trip to Australia. But other people in my lab were working on tropical species. And they said, can you please go to Townsville <laughs> and collect this? And that is it, of course. <laughs> and that is how I made some connections with people at the university there and people at Ames, the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And it turned out that they were using very similar genetic approaches to study corals to the ones that I was using on seaweeds. And so I, I kept in touch with the people at the university, and that's how I eventually um, got my first position in Australia a few years later. Wasn't long after you came here, as I understand, that we had the first mass bleaching event in 1998 yeah. of coral reefs around the world. Can you explain to us where you were at the time and then also how that changed your research? Mm -hmm. I came to Australia in uh, 1997, June 1997. I will not forget because I was pregnant with my son who was born in December of that year uh, when we were going into um, the, the first major bleaching event on the Great Barrier Reef, which um, um, happened uh, in early 1998. To understand what bleaching is, you first need to realize that corals form a very an intimate relationship with microalgae. They live, the microalgae live inside the coral cells. And the corals rely on uh, these microalgae for most of their nutrition. So the microalgae use um, energy from the sun um, and they turn carbon dioxide and water into um, a number of compounds, including sugars. 
Um, and they then release a lot of those sugar to, to the coral cells. So they translocate them from their, from their own cells to, to the coral. And the, the corals rely on that nutrition. They can also feed what we call heterotrophic. They can, they can capture little sort of plankton animals, but they mostly rely on the, on the sugars that they get from the microalgae. And so that's what we call a symbiotic relationship. That's between right. The algae yes. and the coral. Yeah. And so the algae is the symbiont, which is the first big word that we heard earlier. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. So they're microalgal symbionts. And when a coral beaches, the symbionts, the microalgae are lost from the coral tissues. And now these microalgae, they have sort of a, a golden brown color and they give the coral their main, main color. Most corals are, are brown and then they have some maybe pinks and blues and yellows, which are caused, they are, they're caused by pigments that the coral makes itself. But the brown color, coloration is due to the, the microalgal symbionts. And um, when the corals loses these microalgae, um, all of a sudden we can see the calcium carbonate skeleton through the coral tissue, which itself is translucent. And that is why, it's, so this bleaching is a paling of the coral, and, and that's why we call it coral bleaching. And is it dead? A coral can recover from bleaching if it can regain the microalgae. But um, so if the, the, the stress, like the heat during a summer heat wave, we see, often see mass bleaching events. If that lasts for too long, the coral will starve and die before it can recover. So it depends on uh, how extreme and intense that, that stress event, that heat wave actually is, whether it will die or whether it will survive. And so the scientific community in 1998 is shocked horrified at the scale of the bleaching? Would that be right? Have, and have Absolutely. You... It was really the, the first global mass bleaching event. I mean, there had been sort of small-scale bleaching event, a more regional, maybe slightly larger bleaching events, but 97, 98 was the first global mass bleaching event. And I think that's when it really hit home that climate change is really here and it's going to have a major impact on coral reefs. So I started working on corals when I came to Australia in 97. And then towards the end, maybe 99, 2000, I started to focus on those microalgae that have this intimate relationship with the coral. And there was some sort of research time to come out that, that suggested um, that these algae may actually be, play an important role in bleaching and in the upper heat uh, or temperature tolerance limits of corals. So I started to describe the diversity of the microalgae uh, on the Great Barrier, even starting to tease out what their, what their function might be within the coral animals. So the, the first um, project I worked on when I came to Australia was understanding um, the evolutionary history of reef building corals. And I discovered, um, and this supported a hypothesis that Charlie Varon had postulated years before, but using genetics I could uh, demonstrate that um, over evolutionary time, corals hybridized, that mean, meaning they cr different species crossbreed and, and produce offspring that then survives on the reef. And, and we could see that in our genetic um, uh, data. Then um, in, on the Great Barrier Reef, where we have high coral species diversity, it's a little complex to, um, to sort of decipher that. But in the Caribbean, there's a diversity of corals as well, but in a particular group of corals, the Acropora corals, there's only two coral species and then a third one which turns out to be a hybrid as well. So that's a simple system and I did a little bit of work on that one as well to understand that. Data from colleagues from the Caribbean showed that the hybrid in the Caribbean is actually used to be quite rare but it's increasing in distribution and it sometimes is actually more tolerant than the two parent species. 
And that made me think, uh, well, can we use hybridization to increase tolerance of corals as an as a intervention and a rest restoration method? So this discovery that hybridization occurred on, in Great Barrier Reef corals and then comparing it to the, the Caribbean situation made me then think of, can we harness these um, naturally occurring processes? Your discovery triggered worldwide headlines at the time. What was the light bulb moment? How did it happen? Yeah, I think it, it probably wasn't a eureka moment. It was probably more gradual um, because for decades I was studying how corals adapt to environmental change. And then sort of um, yeah, realizations as I just described about um, the hybridization, but also when we discovered that some microalgal species um, made corals more heat tolerant than others, and then the, the, you know, we started to actually manipulate those symbioses in the lab just to understand you know, the, the, the role of the microalgal symbiont, not yet to, to make hardier corals. It just made me think, well, you know, why don't we take it a step further and not just try and understand mechanisms, but try to utilize those mechanisms to help corals cope with climate change better. Was it a straight line from the discovery of crossbreeding in corals to the idea of human-assisted evolution? And can you explain to us then what is human-assisted evolution mm -hmm. in corals? So yeah, human-assisted evolution is pretty much us intervening with natural processes, but not changing those natural processes, but taking those and speeding them up, um, mostly in the laboratory, but probably eventually also on, on the reef. So it's, it's the acceleration of natural processes that already happen out, out on the reef to um, yeah, speed up the adaptation of corals so they become tolerant quicker. And yeah, if we fast forward a decade, your landmark 2015 paper for the proceedings of uh, the National Academy of Sciences, you argued it was, quote, prudent to explore the potential to augment the capacity of reef organisms to tolerate stress and to facilitate recovery after disturbances. How was that paper received? Yeah, I was uh, asked whether I'm playing God many, many, many times. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of skepticism and resistance, even from within the scientific community, surprisingly. Um, it's interesting, there was a, a, um, an in the International Coral Reef uh, meeting uh, occurs once every four years, and there was one in 2016. And uh, just recently I was talking to a colleague and he said, I remember vividly, everybody was talking about it. And I, I realized mostly behind my back <laughs> and people just were worried and they thought it was crazy. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of resistance. You weren't put off. No, I wasn't put off because, you know, I thought it was a, a strange argument to say I'm playing God. When we have already influenced the marine environment as we have the the terrestrial environment. I mean, in fact, there's nowhere in the ocean where we cannot measure human influence. So to say that we're playing God by trying to repair some of the damage that we've done, I thought that was very strange. I think to some extent, the marine environment is sometimes more foreign to the, to, to the general public, not to marine scientists, obviously, and maybe that's why, why people feel a little bit more hesitant about intervening with, with that environment. Because if we look at, you know, look how we live here in the city, which part hasn't been modified by humans? Everything has been modified by humans, and we accept that quite readily. But when it comes to the marine environment, as all of a sudden people are a little bit more hesitant. And I suspect that to some extent it's because it's, it's more foreign to a lot, a lot of people. Your paper described 
a number of different approaches to assisted evolution and each represented incrementally more human intervention. Can you explain those different types, just in broad terms? So one is what we call conditioning. And people might know that from agricultural speeches where people talk about hardening. It's pretty much a different word for the same thing, where you expose um, an, an organism to stress, uh, but stress that doesn't kill it. And so, you know, if it's sort of if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Um, and and, that, and that, that can happen. So we're exploring whether um, uh, mild stress can actually preset corals to cope better with subsequent heat waves. So that's probably a relatively low risk um, on, the, on the scale of risk, a low risk intervention. But I should say, um, so far researchers have found that yes, sometimes it does actually increase tolerance, but not always. Actually, sometimes it has a negative effect. So, you know, it could, could have negative impact. Another one is the selective breeding. We used two different approaches. One was where we crossed different species, and that comes back to that earlier research that we spoke about. Hybridization. Hybridization, yes, between species. So you have to understand if you have different species that evolve separately for most of the time, their genomes are going to diverge. You know, random changes happen in genomes just because every cell division, the cell machinery that copies the, the chromosomes makes mistakes, and mutations will occur and some will, will maintain. So then when you bring those species together, if you can still cross-breed them, you bring that diversity together in the offspring, in one organism. So you increase genetic diversity and also you, you make different gene combinations in the hybrid offspring. And sometimes the combination of these different genes results in different uh, characteristics of, of that offspring. And it could be that it's more tolerant to heat could be more resistant to disease. It could have negative impact in some hybrids as well. So that's one approach that we have been testing. And the other one is also a form of hybridization, but within species. And here we, we select the broodstock, the parents, based on their, their relative heat tolerance. So we breed parents that have high heat tolerance and then to create a lot of offspring that also has relatively high heat tolerance. And that can be beneficial in terms of restoring coral reefs with offspring that is, has a little bit more heat tolerance. And then another um, approach is where we manipulate microbes that associate with corals. And that includes the microalgae that we already spoke about, because we know now that they play a very important role in the upper heat tolerance limits of the corals. And so we know that certain species of microalgae that occur naturally on the reef give the corals better tolerance than others. But we've also know, we also know that in many instances that comes at a, at a cost of slower growth to the coral because those algae uh, translocate less sugar to the coral. So there's a trade-off with you know, an energetic trade-off between heat tolerance and, and growth and also reproduction because that costs a lot of energy. And so what we can do, a lot of these algae, we can take out of the coral and we can culture them in the lab. And in the lab, we can um, speed up the rate of adaptation and we can adapt them to increasing temperatures. And we've done that and then we've reintroduced them into coral. And it's actually quite exciting. We've now uh, been able to evolve an, a, a microalgae that has high heat tolerance, but it doesn't come with that trade-off, as we call it, for growth. So it still gives the coral a lot of sugars. Um, and then, yeah, that is really exciting to us. Uh, we've tested that in the lab and we've just deployed some corals that were um, infected with this heat-evolved alga in the field to see how the coral will perform in the field as well. So that's pretty exciting. And then the last one is where we manipulate bacteria that associate with corals. 
Just like ourselves, we have a very diverse uh, gut microbiome, which is really important for our health, our function, even our state of mind, our mental health, and, and, and many, many uh, characteristics of humans. So corals similarly associated with bacteria that occur on, on the surface of the corals, also inside the coral tissues, in their gut, pretty much everywhere uh, in the coral. And so we are exploring whether we can develop a, a bacterial probiotic, um, if you will, that, that might help the coral under summer heat waves. When you're actually doing this selective breeding, you have to take advantage of a single moment, a spawning event of the corals when they reproduce. Can you describe that to us? Because I've got a picture from some <laughs> of the things I've read. Yeah. Of, a bunch of scientists in a lab watching coral spawn, carrying buckets around and doing it all by hand. It all sounds very rarefied, but it's actually <laughs> high pressure, hands-on, isn't it? It is, yeah. Most corals spawn once, once a year, so one shot pretty much we got at, at doing this sort of work um, during the coral mass spawning event, um, as we call it. So the way that works is that we go out to the reef and we, we check whether they uh, are likely to what we call spawn, which is the release of their sperm and eggs. Uh, we can see we can just break off a little fragment just just before they spawn, a, a few days before, and um, the eggs that are inside the polyps um, become co colored, pink or red, and so you can actually see that visible with the naked eyes. Visible, the, yeah, yeah, with the naked eyes. Well, maybe not now. I need reading glasses, but <laughs> when you're younger, you can see it <laughs> underwater. Um, and so we bring them in, and then we now can predict pretty accurately when they will spawn. So on the night of spawning, we, we isolate the colonies and we watch them. And um, then when they release, they release bundles of sperm of egg that will float to the surface. And we can collect them in sort of the, the early days. We just Ew. scoop them up, <laughs> scoop them up with, a, with a, a beaker or something like that, pretty low tech. And then we can separate the sperm from the eggs. So that's, yeah, so yeah. you do that by hand. We do, well, yes, we do it by, by hand. And this is in the, you know, the R&D phase. You know, once you scale it up, it all has to be automated. But yeah, by hand uh, initially. So we have a simple piece of PVC pipe and we, put a, we glue a mesh to the bottom. And we, we then have a plastic bowl with some seawater, and then we pour the, the bundles of sperm and eggs on top. And then we just gently agitate it, and the sperm will go through the mesh, and the eggs will stay on top. And then we can take the eggs out, and so we have the eggs and sperm separated. And then we can set up any sort of in vitro cross that we want. So you can take those eggs from one species and carry them over to another species. We can, yeah. And they'll hopefully reproduce. Yes, and not all species will cross-fertilize, but some do. What's the point of all this? Are you trying to build a better reef or breed super corals or is that a bit of a misnomer? Yeah, super coral is a misnomer because any, any trait that you select for by whatever method, you know, the microbes or selective breeding, is likely to come at a cost to other characteristics because within a, an organism, there's only so much energy to go around. So if you change it so that it can sort of invest more energy in coping with heat, it will likely come at a cost of something else. So that's why the word super coral in the scientific world, we don't really like it because a super coral doesn't really exist. But we're trying to improve the traits that we feel are critically important for corals to survive the next few decades until we actually deal with climate warming. And why do we need to save reefs? Is it just to save the pretty corals? There's a whole kind of yes. food chain that depends on corals, isn't there? Yes, exactly right, yes. Reefs are home to about a third of all marine species. So if you lose reefs, you lose most of those species. Um, that has consequences well for other marine 
uh, ecosystems, but also for our own economy. I mean, some countries or peoples um, depend on coral reefs for their livelihood, some of the Pacific Islanders, for instance. But even for a country like Australia, um, the Great Barrier Reef has huge economic value. You know, there's important industries that it supports, fisheries, pharmaceuticals, tourism. It provides a lot of jobs, but it also has very important spiritual and cultural values, particularly to traditional owners uh, of the reef. So, um, yeah, if you lose reefs, um, it's a disaster, I'd say. I mean, they also protect um, Queensland coastline, the Great Barrier Reef, the coral. So when we lose the Great Barrier Reef, there will be far more erosion on, you know, on top of sea level rise. That, that's going to be quite disastrous, I think. Is the solution scalable? It's a fundamental problem with everything to do mm. with the Great Barrier Reef, isn't it? The size of it. I mean, people describe it as the canary in the coal mine, but it's the size of Italy. How do you scale up this assisted evolution? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question and it's a huge challenge. I think to some extent we can be strategic as to where we put out those enhanced corals. Now we know that we call connectivity on the reef, so the connection between reefs based on ocean currents. Um, it's not the same for every reef. Some reefs would like receive a lot of propagules and others would be more like a donor reef. So, you know, we could think of maybe restoring donor reefs. So maybe naturally um, some of these enhanced corals will spread over the generation. If we succeed in, in any uh, enhancement via the, the microbes that, that associate with corals, I think that will provide um, a lot of scope for, to address the scale. Um, because I mean, you can think about th those microbes will also establish, likely establish in the environment, so they might be able then to associate with other corals. Um, but it, there's a lot of unknowns still, and this is one of the major research areas that we're working on. How can we do this at a scale that is relevant? Well, I want to say that, that even if we feel it's difficult and we don't know the, the answer completely today, Technological developments happen so fast. You know, what is not possible today might be quite feasible five years down the track. So I don't think it should stop us developing these um, interventions if we don't fully understand yet how we can implement at a scale that is relevant to the issue. You can't help every coral species adapt, can you? you um, given the incredible diversity of just even the Great Barrier Reef, how do you decide which corals to breed and what a healthier reef might look like? Do you want to save every single species or just a representative sample? In an ideal world, we would want to save every species. But in reality, if we're talking about enhancing corals, I don't think that will be feasible. Just resource-wise, that, that's going to be impossible. So we have, we have to make decisions as to which species we're, we're going to select. And again, <laughs> that's a difficult question. So um, we sat together as a group of scientists and, and brainstormed as to how we could best do that. And we went through some thinking process. First of all, can we identify the function that different coral species provide to the reef? And that is very difficult because we don't know enough about many coral species. We know, we know something about a small number of coral species, but we know very little about many other coral species. So what we proposed, and this paper is hopefully going to come out soon, is that we just look at what we call this trade space. So every coral is different and has different characteristics, and you can plot that into the trade space. And so if we pick corals for restoration 
that cover a large area of that trade space, then they probably have, we feel they have the best chance to be able to cope with any environmental change, even if we don't, if we cannot predict everything in the, in the greatest detail. So it's sort of a bad hedging strategy. Um, we, think, we think that that might be the best strategy. Now, it still needs to be peer reviewed by the wider community once the paper comes out, but you know, as, a, as a subset of uh, core research scientists, that's what, what we are going to propose. Earlier in this series, we heard from Charlie Veron, uh, um, who's named half of, or third of the um, coral species on the reef. He said it's already 95% gone compared to what he first saw when he dove uh, at the Great Barrier Reef um, as a young man. How much can you save? I think we should make an effort in um, also setting up biobanks. And Charlie is involved in, in one initiative where the biobank will consist of large-scale aquaria to keep corals alive. And I think, uh, I think they call it Noah's Ark, or he's referred to it as such, where they collect a, a number of individuals of, of all the species on the reef. Other researchers are developing uh, cryopreservation techniques, and uh, we can already uh, cryopreserve coral sperm quite well. So you're, that's, you're doing that in Dubbo, aren't you? Or? I'm, I've been involved in some of the early work, and we, we actually established the first Great Barrier Reef uh, Coral Sperm Bank, and that's that's how it's housed in in Dubbo, uh, Taronga uh, Conservation Society. So the cryo, the cryo people are now also, um, they've had some successes uh, where they can preserve little pieces of coral tissue, even with the microalgae inside. And that would be wonderful if you can just thaw that out and it grows into a coral. And they're also trying to develop technologies uh, to preserve coral eggs. And I see that it's an analog to um, seed banks that people who work with crop species have developed over the decades. Um, and now they are sort of tapping into these seed banks, sometimes also to cross um, plants from different, originally from different regions in the world where they had adapted to different environments and to just create diversity in the, in the pool of the individuals in the crop and give them the best chance to cope with climate change. And I think um, we should do something similar uh, for corals, be it uh, cryopreservation or, or in an aquarium. And um, there's also initiatives where people are identifying regions in the world where corals might survive better actually, actually in the field and, and those could, could maybe receive high conservation status. So there's different approaches that I think should be done at the same time to preserve as much as we have left today. Because it's not just the warming that we've seen so far, is it? There's a lagged effect, as I understand it, which is even greater in the oceans than the atmosphere, for example. And so uh, the, the oceans are going to continue to warm for centuries, even if we stop emitting greenhouse yeah. gases tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not a climate scientist, but what I understand from the literature is that even if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions today, there would still be further warming for some period of time. Uh, that, that lag effect uh, of, uh, of these gases in the atmosphere, that will continue for some time. And that is, of course, um, a great worry. So we really have a, a relatively narrow window of time to do something about the climate and greenhouse gases. Um, and really, the assisted evolution it's not meant to replace any action on climate change. It's in addition to action on climate change and conventional management. It's really what we're hoping to do is buy time for corals until we finally curb climate warming. In one recent paper, you wrote that assisted evolution, quote, might contribute to the persistence of coral reefs until global warming is halted. Now, when, when do we need to halt this global warming? Is there a time frame around that? Uh, it should, should we, have, we should have done it 
like 25 years we should, ago. Should. We should have done it way earlier. We always seem to wait until it's almost too late before we do something, right? It's yes. very frustrating. Everything in the world is like that, it seems. And if you intervene early, it's a lot easier, really. But uh, that's not what has happened. So most models say that um, we will have annual mass bleaching at least by 2050. And there was a recent paper where, where the modelers looked at not just heating, but also acidification and other disturbances. And they said, um, you know, 2035 is maybe a cutoff date by which we should have really achieved something. So that's pretty scary. Um, so very soon. Do you think the reef is done for? If, you know, just in the plainest possible sense, we've been hearing about the threat to the Great Barrier Reef yeah. for 25 years, yeah. uh, at least in Australia, since that 1998 mass bleaching event. Do you think people have given up? Do you think there's a, a danger that people will give up? There's a danger, but there's still hope. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that um, technology will at least help us to buy that time. But then it's really um, um, many, often due to uh, governments, right, to decide what's, what are we going to do about regulating uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, uh, well, you know all the complexity because it's a global issue and we know about COP and the Paris Agreement and all of that. And will countries then actually stick to what they promise? Um, that's the challenge. But I, I'm, hope, I'm sure we lose more reef. We will lose coral species for sure and um, other species that live on the Great Barrier Reef. But I'm still at this moment hopeful that we can save something. And so I think, I think things will get worse. But I'm hoping that we will deal with the climate in the decades to come. And then in combination with technological developments that once we get over you know, this hurdle of a worse time that hopefully we'll eventually see some improvement. So what's next for you, Madeline? What's the, what's the next step? You've shown that it works in the lab. Yeah, so the progression usually is first proof of concept in the lab, and then the next step is controlled small field trials, which is the stage that we are at now. And then uh, once we can demonstrate that the intervention actually works in the field setting, and also we can, that allows us to assess the, the risk a little bit, like intended and unintended consequences, if that risk is deemed acceptable, then I think we'll go to like a larger scale deployment and, and really hopefully to implementing this as a restoration method. Madeline, if anyone was going to play God, I couldn't think of a better person than you. <laughs> Good luck with your research. And Thank I'd just you. like to ask uh, anyone in the audience to uh, join me in a round of applause. Thank you. To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording. Go to 100climateconversations.com.